Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Why don't we take a minute to pray before we jump into our subject this morning. Heavenly Father, I just look to you today and ask you that you'd speak to us through our time together. I just think how there's no more important subject than the subject we're going to be looking at here today. There's nothing that's more important than this message. And I think how so many get it wrong that it's the single biggest misunderstanding people have, the thing we're going to be talking about here today. And so I ask you, Lord, to speak to us through our time together. Open our eyes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, my twin brother and I would often be asked to sing specials in our church service. Uh, It it was kind of cute, I think, to have the Tim and Tom, the two boys, and our voices matched perfectly. And so occasionally we would sing either in the morning or the evening service. Well, one evening, we were supposed to sing that evening, and before the service was to begin, we had our youth group. And what this meant is that we would have to go to the church a little bit earlier than usual, so I was rushing to get ready. I got all dressed, and and when it was time to walk out the door, I realized that the shoes that I needed to wear, they were dress shoes, and that's how we used to do it back then. You'd wear dress shoes both in the morning and the evening, but they were all scuffed up and dirty, and I needed to polish them. And so I went under the bathroom cabinet and I found the shoe polish and I, I polished the shoes, but I noticed something almost immediately that they, it kind of smelled, the, the shoe polish smelled. Now, I wouldn't have thought this would even be possible. I've never heard of such a thing, shoe polish that gets rotten. But anyway, I polished the shoes and then I rushed out to the car and on the way to church, I happened to be sitting in the front seat there and the, the heat was blowing on my shoes. And suddenly somebody in the car said, what is that horrible smell? And I kind of went along with it. Yeah, what is that smell? Of course, I knew what it was. I knew it was my shoes, this rotten shoe polish. But I kind of went along with it. My hope was that by the time I got to the church that the shoes would be dry and it wouldn't smell anymore. We arrived at the church. We were a little bit early for the youth group and I was standing there talking with my twin brother when suddenly he said to me, that smell. He said, it's here too. I can smell it in here too. And then I realized I had a problem. For our youth group, we usually sat in a circle and I knew that people would figure out that the smell was coming from me. And so before the youth group began, I took off my shoes, I put them in a corner, and I came back and sat in the circle. My twin brother asked me about it. I came up with some kind of excuse why I did it. And we had youth group. After the youth group was done, Tom and I made our way to the sanctuary. We sang in the, uh, sat in the front pew since we were going to be singing that night. And, and then my dad was the one leading the worship service that evening. And so he opened with prayer and then we sang a, a hymn. And during the hymn, while we were singing the hymn, suddenly my twin brother turned to me and he said, that smell, I smell it here too. And at this point I started laughing. 
And I whispered to him, I said, that smell, it's my shoes. I polished, I polished these shoes and, and the, the polish was rotten. It was spoiled or something. Kind of like rotten eggs is what it smelled like. Well, we both thought that was so funny and we were laughing. Of course, we're sitting in the front row and suddenly the hymn was done and my dad announced to the congregation, we have a special now from Tim and Tom. They're gonna sing a song for us. And so we made our way up to the platform and we turned and faced the, the, uh, the crowd that was there and my mom was the pianist and she began playing the song for us and the very first words out of our mouth, both my twin brother and I burst out laughing. My mom realizing we weren't singing anymore suddenly stopped playing the piano and we tried to control ourselves, you know, and, and we were able to do it for a little bit and then my mom started playing the piano again. And we began to sing and this time we made it through about the first line of the song and then both of us burst out laughing once again and when my mom realized that we were not singing once again, she stopped playing. We composed ourselves. Our dad said, do you think that you're able to sing this song for us tonight? And, and, and we started laughing and we knew, no, we're not gonna be able to do it. And so the two of us sat down and I felt so bad about it. You have to realize that this is, was a serious worship service in a very conservative church. The entire congregation was watching all of this. We sang another hymn. And then my dad looked at my twin brother and me and said, do you think you're ready now to sing the song? Our mistake was at that point to look at each other because the moment we looked at each other, we started laughing again and that was the end of it. We never did end up singing the song that night. Now I was raised in a home and many of you perhaps like me were raised in a home where you were spanked when you did things that were wrong. And so after this incident, I expected fully that we were gonna receive a spanking or at the very least, we were gonna get some kind of a lecture when we got home. It was just painful even waiting through the service to see what would happen to us when we got home. When we got home though, I was a little bit surprised to discover that my dad wasn't gonna discipline us at all. In fact, I don't believe he even said anything about it. And I was so relieved, although I do think my worry was perhaps punishment enough. Now I suppose that we could debate whether or not what we did that night was punish worthy or not. What I do know is that there were other occasions where we would end up being disciplined because of things that we did wrong. For example, there was the time that my twin brother brought a, a small snake he had caught in the field next to the church and he brought it out into Sunday school class to scare the girls or the time that I brought some marbles to church. We, were, we weren't supposed to bring our toys. And I sat down and they rolled out of my pop and, uh, pockets and they bounced on the floor and then rolled down. And, and I think we were probably disciplined more on Sundays than any other day because my dad was always the one who opened up the building at night and he was the one that, or in the mornings, and he'd be the one to close it. And we were just there a long time and there were many opportunities for us to get into trouble. So why am I talking about all of this? Well, I think that we learn early in life that when we do good things, when we behave, when we do what we're supposed to do, oftentimes there's a reward for it or, or we receive kind words for it when we behave. But when we do wrong things, when we do bad things, we learn that we are disciplined. 
There are consequences for the things we do wrong, and there are oftentimes rewards for doing the things that are expected of us. And the first place we kind of learn of this is in the home. And then we start going to school, and we discover that there's the same thing at work at school. Well, you learn early on that if you don't do your homework or you don't do it in time or you're not, you don't do a good job with it or you don't study for the test, then you're going to be penalized for it. But if you study hard, if you do well, then you're going to be rewarded for it in the, in the form of a good grade. And we realize that, that there are consequences for the things we do wrong and, and there are positive rewards for the things that we do right. And then eventually we get a job. And we discover that the same thing is at work there as well. If you do a good job, if you work hard, if you arrive on time, you'll be rewarded for it. You might, you might get a, a, a raise, you might get a promotion or whatever else. That's kind of how the system works. But if you don't do what you're supposed to do, then you may get fired or you may get demoted or you may not get that raise that you were looking for. There's, there tends to be a correlation between the two. Now, not always. Assuming that you're not in a situation where you're being discriminated against, which I think that does happen sometimes, the general rule is that we get rewarded for good behavior and we are penalized for bad behavior. And that tends to be how the system works. And because that's the way it tends to work, people misunderstand how God deals with us. They think that God operates on the same principle most people have this idea that if they are good enough, if they're good people, that they earn or merit heaven. Of course, they'll get rewarded with heaven. Be a good person, you end up going to heaven. But if you're a bad person, you'll end up in that other place. That there are consequences for being bad people. Now, I think that there are lots of problems with this thinking. And as we'll see in a minute, I think it's the biggest misunderstanding that people have about how to get right with God. But the biggest problem with this thinking is what I kind of alluded to last week. None of us are good enough to merit heaven. God's standard is perfection. His standard is so high. And when we compare ourselves, of course, with ourselves, maybe we feel good about ourselves, but, but as I looked at last week in Romans, none of us are good. There's no one who does good, not even one, for all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory or the standard of God. And so the question I want to address today is how do we get right with God? And I want to look at the story of a man who was considered to be the father of our faith, Abraham. Now Abraham is someone who learned the lesson that you do not get right with God based on good deeds. Instead, you get right with God based on God's kindness. It's a system of grace where God extends undeserved kindness to us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's something that he gives us, and we'll see it's on the basis of faith, as I talked about last week. My takeaway today is this. Salvation can't be earned. It can only be received as a gift. Now, salvation, as I defined it last week, means to be delivered Delivered from the penalty of our sins specifically. Salvation can't be earned. It is something that is to be received as a gift. Now the three monotheistic religions, the main three, are Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And all three of those religions go back to Abraham. 
All three of them look to Abraham as the starting point, and they look to Abraham as the example. And so in the verses we're going to be looking at here today in Romans chapter 4, Paul asks the question, what did Abraham learn? How did Abraham get right with God? And so I'd like to read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And we begin to look at Abraham's example. Beginning in verse 1, we read, What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? If Abraham was justified or declared righteous by works or good deeds, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul's raising the question here at the outset, what did Abraham learn that he needed to do How did he get right with God? Now, in Paul's day, the average Jewish person had the perspective that they would go to heaven on the basis of Abraham's good deeds. In other words, they had the perspective that Abraham was such a good guy that everybody that is born of Abraham could get into heaven holding on to his coattails, as the expression goes. A scholar by the name of J.A. Whitmer makes this observation about the Jewish mindset in the time of Paul. He writes, the rabbis taught that Abraham had a surplus of merit from his works that was available to his descendants. In other words, he was such a good man. He did such good deeds that he could not only save himself, but he had this surplus that would be available for all of his descendants as well, that that God would accept all his descendants on the basis of Abraham's extraordinary goodness. But is that how he got right with God? Let me plant a thought in your thinking here at this point to ask just the question, how good was Abraham? Abraham. Was he really good enough? Have you examined his life to see the things he did, the mistakes that he made? Was he really good enough to save himself, let alone good enough to save those that would be his physical descendants? The Apostle Paul acknowledged this. This is faulty thinking. And then again, he points back to Abraham. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? What did he learn? If Abraham was justified by works or good deeds, he has something to brag about, but not before God. Now let me stop for a moment. The word justified, the word justified means to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. What did Abraham, our physical ancestor, learn he needed to do to get justified? To be declared by God to be a righteous person. Now, this is a very important question because the only people that will end up in heaven, according to what's taught in the Bible, are those who are justified by God, those who are declared by God to be righteous. Once a scholar, by the way, I'm sorry, my Bible has an asterisk by the word justified. It defines it this way. Justified is the act of God as judge that declares sinners who are in the wrong to be right or righteous in his sight. Now, this is, this is encouraging to me because I'm, I'm a sinner. 
And I'm putting my trust in a God that will declare me, though I'm a sinner, though I'm in the wrong, he declares me as if I were right. This is just really a remarkable thing. Now, the word justified is, is a word that's used in a legal sense, like in a, like in a courtroom. And so I would frame Paul's question in this way. What do we need to do to be declared by the judge of the universe to be righteous and not guilty so that we would be qualified to go to heaven when we die as if we never sinned? Let me say that again. What do we need to do to be declared by the judge of the universe to be righteous and not guilty so that we'll be qualified to go to heaven as if we had never sinned when we die? Now, Paul begins to address two different approaches to this question. In other words, people tend to approach this particular question in two different ways. Asking the question, how do we get justified? There are two different approaches that he gets at. One of them is an approach that looks at our good deeds, and the other one is an approach that, that looks at God's grace being given to us as a gift. Now again, as I mentioned last week, our problem is we all fall short of the glory of God, the standard of God. And let me ask you this question, who among us, if we are trusting in our good deeds, who among us thinks that we're confident enough of our righteousness to stand in the presence of a holy God on judgment day and feel like we can say, here I am, see how good I am, accept me into your eternal place. Do any of us feel that we could be confident in that moment standing in the presence of God? The answer is no. Again, people use two different approaches and Paul begins to flesh them out, but it comes back again to my takeaway. Salvation can't be earned, it can only be received as a gift. Those are the two different ways. So let me read verses four and five again and then I wanna spell it out. Beginning in verse four of Romans four, we read, now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Now I put together a chart here that compares these two different approaches to how we are justified, how we're declared righteous by God, how we are saved, delivered from the penalty of our sin. In the one column I have a wage. We approach salvation as if it's something we earn like a wage. The second is a gift. And I want to mention four different ways in which this is approached based on those two different main approaches. First of all, I want to talk about how we approach God if it's a wage. If we're coming to God on the basis of a wage, the approach we use is we think we can earn it. Paul says it's kind of like a job. You know, when you work a job, you get your wage, right? You don't say thank you when you get your paycheck because you say, I, I earn it. I, I deserve it. And so this is how I think most people think you get right with God. Well, if you're a good person, you've earned it, and you're going to go to heaven. That's the approach people use to try to get right with God. What about a gift? Well, the approach you use in that case is you receive it. You receive it by faith as a gift. So how do these two approaches view God then? Well, if it's a wage, they view God as a debtor. 
They view that God owes me. I did this. God has to pay me. God owes me for this. That's the view people would have of God in that world. How about if it's a gift? Well, God is a giver. Our God is generous. He's gracious. He's kind. It's undeserved because that's the nature of a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You just receive a gift. What's the effect of the two different approaches? Well, if it's a wage... The effect is going to be pride and self-sufficiency. Those who think you can get to heaven in this way, if they were to make it to heaven, would say, look, I'm here because I deserve it. I'm so good a person. Look, I'm, I'm better than you are, maybe. You know, we'd have a certain pride about ourselves. And we'd also have a self-sufficiency. Who needs Christ? Who needs the cross? You're good enough to go to heaven. What's the effect if it's a gift? Well, the effect is gratitude. And it's trust. We learn to trust God and we learn to trust God's promises. And then what's the result? Well, if it's a wage, the result is you remain in your sin. In other words, you've chosen to say, okay, I'm going to come to God as I am. I hope it's good enough. That's what you were hoping. And as I talked about last week, none of us are good enough. None of us are righteous. It's a scary proposition. On the other side, what's the result if it's a gift? Your debt is erased because it's based on God's kindness and not your worthiness. Now, when we are first introduced to Abraham, and again, Paul points back, and we're going to look back to Abraham in just a moment here, but when we are first introduced to Abraham in, in the Bible, he is an idolater. We read in the New Testament that he and his family worshiped idols. He was a, a sinner, if we'd put it that way. He, he had violated the most important, perhaps, of the Ten Commandments, even though they hadn't been given yet. But the greatest command is to put God in his proper place, honor God, but he, he didn't do that. And then in the midst of this idolatry, and while he was going his own way, God approached Abraham. In God's kindness, in God's grace, he reached out to Abraham and he made some wonderful promises to him. Those promises are found in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. God told Abraham, my, my love and my affection are on you. But the greatest thing that God promised to him was that he'd have a son and many descendants. This was a big deal for Abraham because he and his wife had been unable to have children. He was 75 when God first approached him. And yet God promised him, you're going to have a son. In fact, not just a son. God told Abraham that his descendants would be so numerous you wouldn't even be able to count them. It's found in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Let me read it. It says, he took him, God took him, Abraham, outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And then this is the verse that counts. This is the verse that Paul quotes. This is the one that makes all the difference in the world. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. God justified Abraham and declared him righteous on the basis of just taking God at his word. He believed God. 
Now, I want to suggest here today that faith has always been the only way that people get right with God, both in the Old and the New Testament. It has never been about good works. It's always been about trusting in a God who is able to save sinners. That's what it's about. Paul talked about this also in Galatians 3, 6, and 7. He said, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's son. Abraham believed God. God credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, we're told, you better understand that those who have faith are the ones who are true descendants of Abraham. Now, the word credited in this verse and in Romans 4 is a word that's used in accounting or was used in accounting in biblical times. It means to put in one's account. What this is saying is Abraham believed God and righteousness was credited to his account. He trusted God and a deposit was made in his account called righteousness and suddenly he was right with God. And when we're right with God, that's the thing that makes it possible for us to go to heaven. Now, let me use a modern-day illustration that I talk about in my book. I talk about the fact that we all, or most of us, maybe have a checking account, and, and we keep a ledger. And we, we put deposits in there, and we make withdrawals. We write checks. And so, anytime you make a withdrawal in your account, it's called a debit. And then you make deposits. They're called credits. And, and the goal, of course, is to always make sure that the credits exceed the deposits because if you do not have enough money in your account and you make a withdrawal, you're overdrawn. Many of us have experienced this kind of the hard way. I remember once I made a $1,000 error in my math in my checkbook and suddenly I was overdrawn. Just one little math error and it cost me $35. I was in a negative balance suddenly. Now, what we have to understand is that all of us, because of sin, have a negative balance. All of us have an account that's overdrawn. That's where all of us, in a sense, in debt. This is why in, the, in old versions of the Bible, the Lord's Prayer it says, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. Other versions say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's almost as if every sin we commit is like a debt. And it keeps going to that account. It keeps charging against that account. Now, if you listened to me last week, I talked about the fact that I would sometimes pull out a calculator and demonstrate to college students how many times they would sin in a lifetime if they sin just 20 times in a day. And I talked about the fact that sin, biblically, is not just the things we do wrong. It's also the wrong words we use. And it's, it's also our thoughts. How Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you've already sinned in the thoughts and so, if, if you just sin 20 times in a day and you add it up for 70 years of life, you end up with over half a million sins. Now, realize, if you put all that in a checkbook, every sin you commit, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. Say you're a half a million dollars now in debt. Every sin is worth one dollar. How would you ever get out of that? But what if someone could come along and make a deposit to your account, a credit to your account, for 500000 or maybe even a million dollars, maybe they give it an ex excessive amount in there, it would suddenly erase the debt. And this is exactly the idea that Paul is getting at. Abraham believed God, and a credit was made, erasing the debt of sin, making it possible for him to be accepted by God. 
Now, if we move forward to the present, what I want us to understand is that the same thing happens to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ who died in our place and for our sin. When we say that we believe God concerning the sacrifice he made on our behalf and for our sin. In fact, God's ability to credit righteousness to us is based on the fact that he charged his own son with sin. He declared his son guilty so he could declare us not guilty. Now, this is how people have always gotten right with God. And Abraham, by the way, is someone I think he was aware of Christ. And many of you are familiar with the story of how Abraham was even asked to sacrifice his own son and how in a sense he got his own son back from the dead in a sense. It was a picture of the gospel. It was a picture of the good news. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness and the same thing can happen with us. So let me summarize. Abraham is an example of what we need to do to get right with God. We look at Abraham's story and we realize he was a sinner when God found him. And yet God made a promise to him and then we read, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, even one of Abraham's descendants would eventually be the Lord Jesus himself. And just like Abraham, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our savior, then we also receive this deposit of righteousness. We're accepted by God based on the promise he made to us. Now, last week I mentioned the three things that I think we need to understand if we are to receive this, and I want to just quickly summarize them because I think they're the same things that have been true throughout the Bible. First, that the problem is sin. This is what comes between us and God. Abraham was a sinner, so are we. We all blow it. Sin just means to miss the mark. We've all missed the mark. That's the problem that we have to deal with. The solution is Jesus, specifically because of who he was and what he came to do for us. He was, though, throughout the Bible, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The idea that God would send a sacrifice that was blameless to die for sinners is found all the way back in Genesis and it goes all the way through Revelation as well. It was always a picture that God was gonna send his son to take upon himself our sin that in the Old Testament they would confess their sin over an animal that was blameless and they'd kill it, it would die in their place and for their sin so that the one who was offering it could be forgiven. So the problem is sin, the solution is Jesus because of who he was, the sinless son of God who died in our place and for our sin, who rose again from the dead, demonstrated that God had accepted the sacrifice on our behalf, and finally the response God's looking for, and this has been our focus today, is faith or trust. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this is exactly the point of a verse that I read last week, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It's not from works. Isn't that what we're talking about here today? So that no one can boast. And so we come to my takeaway. Salvation can't be earned. It can only be received as a gift. Now, this morning, I'd like to close here with a prayer of invitation like I did last week. If you understand your spiritual need today and realize, I need a Savior, I can't fix this, and you're willing to put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you believe God sent his Son to die in your place and for your sin, and he rose again from the dead, 
and you want to receive him as your Savior, I want to close here in a moment with a prayer. If you are a Christian, though, I want to encourage you to realize that this gospel message is something that should impact your life every single day because we as believers in Christ have been recipients of a wonderful and an amazing gift. And I want to talk about this in a couple weeks, but our relationship with our God is a walk now of faith. And I think even as Christians, sometimes we think we earn God's favor and it's not how it works. The righteous live by faith. We trust God day by day. We cling to his promises. We put our hope in a God who's able to forgive on the basis of his son who died in our place and for our sin. But let's pray. And again, if, if you want to put your faith in Christ today, it's not the prayer itself. It's the faith behind it. But I just encourage you to pray this prayer in your own heart. Dear God, I, I know I sin. I know I've missed the mark. And I can't save myself. I need a deliverer, a savior. And I do believe that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place and for my sin. And then he rose from the dead, demonstrating that you accepted his payment for me. And today, like Abraham, I tell you, God, I put my trust in you. I put my trust in your solution to the problem of my sin. I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.